Imagine a world where you knew that you mattered and you belonged. The people cared about you because we were so darn good at listening to one another, no matter how different we are. That is what Sidewalk Talk is doing by putting listeners on sidewalks all over the world so that we can practice the art of connecting. Join me, founder and director Tracy Rubel, as I interview experts on the fine art of human connection and interview some of our volunteers who've been listening on the sidewalk and even some of the folks that we've listened to. And if you want to volunteer, consider joining us at sidewalk-talk.org. I think it's so cool when someone steps beyond their frame of reference, like Dr. Tanya Israel does for all of us in her book, Beyond Your Bubble. She is a professor in my alma mater at UC Santa Barbara in the Department of Counseling and Clinical School Psychology. She has a PhD in counseling psychology, a master's in human sexuality education, and a BA in psychology and women's studies. She's also a fellow of the American Psychological Association and past president of the Society of Counseling Psychology. So lots of pedigrees. I'm also really inspired by her interventions to support the mental health and well-being of LGBTQ individuals and communities, which has been solicited by the Institute of Medicine, by the United States Congress, and the White House. Um, And she's given TED Talks on bisexuality, which has been viewed by many. And she's the director of a project called Project RISE, which is a research team at UCSB that develops and studies interventions to support the psychological health of LGBTQ individuals and communities. So really excited that she brings this complex lens to this dialogue about listening across our political differences. And I find that the richness of her lens is really inspiring to the rest of us to lean into these difficult conversations. And her book, Beyond Your Bubble, is a must-get. It's a must-get. The whole concept of intellectual humility is something that we all, (laughs) we all could use. So listen in, buckle up, Dr. Tanya Israel. Dr. Tanya Israel, I'm so excited. I found out about you from James Gay, who is a therapist down in LA, and he sort of turned me on to your work. So I first want to say thank you to James. He may not know that he turned me on to you. But um, we just found out that we're both gauchos at UC Santa Barbara. But more importantly, after looking through your book, I mean, you really are an expert on something that's near and dear to my heart, which is how to get folks to really be able to dialogue across political differences. So would you be willing to tell us who you are, what brought you to Santa Barbara, what your research is in, and what led to this book, Beyond Your Bubble, Dr. Israel? I want to thank you so much for having me here today. It's it's great to get to talk with you and to get a chance to talk with all of the folks who are out there uh, who are interested in this. So I just really appreciate the opportunity. So I have been an academic psychologist for over 20 years now, and I've been at UC Santa Barbara. Um, My work is mostly uh, research on how we best support LGBT communities. And so that 
has actually put me into the middle of a lot of conversations that have been challenging and have been difficult. And those skills have really helped me to understand people who are coming from different perspectives and communicate with people who are coming from different perspectives. So when the 2016 election happened, it was really clear that in the US, people were having trouble understanding each other across the political divide, communicating with each other, connecting. And because I'm an applied psychologist, what I wanted to do was to help. And so I started by creating resources. The first thing I made was something that I call the flow chart that, we're, that will resolve uh, in the country. <laughs> it's, like, it's like perfect placemat size. You could put it like under your dinner plate at the, at the Thanksgiving table if you wanted to. You know what? I actually created a version that is Thanksgiving themed and you can order it as a placemat. So oh, that's perfect. Genius. <laughs> I know. I thought, well, you know, if people are struggling with their families over the holidays, what can I give them that will help? So the, the flow chart was really something just to help people to be more intentional about their conversations, to think about, is this actually a conversation I want to have? And if so, What's the best way for me to do that to be effective in meeting my goals? So spoiler alert, the flowchart did not actually resolve all political conflict in our country. No, no. <laughs> Sadly, I think it's just a distribution issue. So everyone goes, okay. I'm for my website, so you'll have it, and then that's going to fix everything. Um, yeah, it'd be a great Christmas gift, actually. I know, right? It so, would. I think it's a fantastic idea. So, you know, I just thought I need to create more resources. So I started offering a workshop because I know that there are skills that can be helpful in having dialogue. And I've been teaching helping skills and communication skills for decades now. And I thought, well, I know something about this and I know how people learn about this. So I started offering this workshop and several hundred people went through the workshop and I got really great feedback and heard more about the struggles that people were having. And so I brought all of that to the process of writing a book. And that's how I got to Beyond Your Bubble, because I wanted to make something that was grounded in everything that we know from psychology, from the research and from the skills and the practice. But I also wanted to make it super accessible so that it was really um, a resource for people to help them uh, to be able to have these kinds of dialogues that I know can be so challenging and so heart-wrenching. Okay, so you are an applied psychologist. You are an expert in difficult conversations. But as somebody who sits in the room with couples who are at each other's throats, I got to say, this political conversation takes things to a whole other level, especially right now. Educate me. Like, what is it about this topic that sort of gets it hotter than the stuff I'm dealing with in my couples therapy office? That, that's a great question, because we've always had political differences in this country. Uh, I mean, from the very beginning. And if, if you don't know that, then all you have to do is watch Hamilton and it'll, <laughs> it'll tell you. Right. Ideally, you know, we want to have dialogue and not duels. So that's, you know, that's really what, what I'm trying to advocate for. But what is it that's made it so challenging right now? And I think some of it has to do with the way people are viewing, not the issues, but the other people who have different views about the issues. And so it's, it's not just taking a position on a policy. 
It's about taking a position on people who are on the other side of that policy. And I think that's what's actually creating so much damage right now. And some of that has to do, frankly, with misperceptions of people. So we assume that people who voted a certain way or wear a certain T-shirt or have a certain bumper sticker are the most extreme, you know, of, of people who believe that. And we believe certain things about their morality or lack thereof. And, and those ideas about other people are really being shaped by media and social media. So that we are, you know, in our bubbles of social media and we're, our ideas about other people are being shaped within that, within, you know, what people say about, oh, if somebody voted for this person, then they believe these things, or if somebody thinks this, then then they don't care about children, or they don't care about the middle class, or you know whatever it is. But but it's really um, uh, accusations of what the other people are like, and we're not even testing those out for the most part. We're not even trying to have the conversations where we can listen and understand and know if that person. Um, you know, really not just what they represent in terms of their views, but who they are as people. I appreciate you. I mean, I appreciate you advocating for this. And I got to say, it's even been hard for me as I'm left-leaning, I'm a liberal, and I have been accused by liberal colleagues of mine for being willing to listen to Republican voters and saying that somehow that means I'm a racist or that I'm condoning certain kinds of ideas. And I'm like, that's not, that's not, what's happening for me. Um, so there seems to be like this, this sort of moral assessment of you as a person and your performativeness, so to speak. How are you showing up? And, and I don't know what question I'm trying to ask here, except to say I'm frustrated by it. I'm just exasperated by it. It makes me feel scared. It makes mm-hmm. me feel scared about the health of democracy. And, you know, when I before we got on, I told you that I studied political science at UCSB. And I used to have a kick out of talking about politics because I studied it. I enjoy talking politics mm-hmm. as a pastime. <laughs> and I can't do that anymore. I know. It's so challenging right now because it feels like there are certain expectations of the way we're supposed to behave and and represent ourselves. I see people post things on Facebook like, if you don't repost this, you're as bad as a white supremacist, you know, or, you know, if, if you don't believe this thing, it feels like they're, the standards are very narrow in terms of the ways that we can prove uh, what our values really are and, and that there's a certain limited standard in that. So this is actually one of the things that one of the messages that's coming from people at the more extremes of our political spectrum right now that is driving people away from dialogue and also from uh, from people who are at those extremes, not wanting to interact with, with those people. So one of the things we used to be able to do and uh, before social media and all that, and you might remember those, the you know those the old days, uh, when we could have different kinds of conversations with different people. So we could express to people with whom we are in solidarity, and and we and we're trying to advocate for the the things and values that are important to them. We could communicate to them our solidarity, and then we could have a different kind of conversation with somebody who doesn't already agree with us, somebody who's not on board with that. And that might be a very different kind of conversation where 
we can't just use our shorthand and our slogans and and expect them to you know uh, to to see things our way. We might have to listen more. We might have to explain more about where we're coming from, and we might have to tolerate some more discomfort. And we have fallen out of practice with doing that. And if we're in an environment like social media where we can really only communicate one thing out to everyone then what we sometimes are expected to do is communicate out that solidarity piece because there are certainly people and populations and communities that need that support and need to know that people are in solidarity with them to feel supported. But then it's also hard for us to do that at the same time that we're communicating something uh, more nuanced with people who aren't on board with that perspective. Yeah. That it's almost like social media. I've been feeling this and I don't know if you do, but I almost feel like social media plays to our extremes because, you know, the algorithms really want to promote the, 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 the posts that are going to get more likes or more comments. And those are usually the ones that are stimulating the most affect in us, whether it's fear or anger or my side or winning or losing. And so, yeah, it strips away all the potential for that nuanced dialogue, which Again, what makes me sad is I always felt like, you know, in my undergrad poli-sci classes, it was the bickering and nuanced dialogue, especially if we had like a team exercise that helped us come up with good ideas because we'd be sitting here talking about policy and it was through bantering with each other that we sort of distilled down the best possible idea. But if you can't do that anymore, then how do you get good ideas, you know? It just becomes right and wrong. I, I really appreciate what you're saying about social media there, because it turns out that, you know, we, we first of all, I'll say we talk a lot about polarization. And it turns out that, indeed, we have people who are at those extremes. But most people are not. Actually, mm. most people are more in the middle. There's this great study called Hidden Tribes that's on the More in Common website that uh, demonstrates that. People are at the extreme, some people are at the extremes, but most people are in what they call the exhausted majority. And I think I a lot of people, <laughs> I know, it's like, I'm tired of hearing the, the tone of divisiveness coming from both sides. I and they're checking out, they're actually disengaging from not only from dialogue, but from our democracy, which is the part that's just heartbreaking to me. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we know is that the people who engage more on social media are the people at the extremes. So that also makes us think that everybody is at the extreme. It, it amplifies that, that polarization in a way that doesn't actually reflect the, the broad range of that spectrum and where people are. But I was thinking about this in terms of Okay, well, I think you're right. People at the extremes, they'll post things that not only get at people's emotions, but also say something very clear. Um, and, and people want to repost things that are really clear. People don't necessarily like and retweet someone who says, yeah, I can see both sides of that. Right. Equin I say this all the time. Equanimity is not popular. It's not sexy. Nor is nuance. Mm -hmm. Nor is perspective taking. I know what's, pop what's what's popular is the the vitriol or the 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 sparkiness or the excitement even of division. 
I know. We need to make perspective taking sexy, I think. We need to make perspective taking sexy. Mm-hmm. Gosh, that's a challenge. That would be a really fun thing to try to figure out. That's the next Thanksgiving place, Matt. <laughs> or I see that on a shirt already. Perspective taking is sexy. I'm sorry. I'm going to go on a. I'm going to go on a trail here. <laughs> oh, go with it. <laughs> yeah, I I'm going to promote that. Would be great. Yeah, you know what? I appreciate you validating something I felt because it felt anecdotal for me. You know, after the last presidential election, we did a bus do we, uh, eight of us hopped in a van and drove for a week through Southern states listening. And I've met so many people. It must've been a, like a wave of like uh, Jungian collective consciousness. Cause so many people did the same thing right after the last presidential election. It's so cool to f- find all these folks. Um, but I too found and and I'm continuing to find after this presidential election, the same thing in the listening that I do that there are people, a lot of people in the center and also people you might think that um, all folks from this racial group or all folks from this gender identity or all folks from this sexual identity vote this way. But I'm like, there's a range and every human story deserves a platform and, and an opportunity to be heard with that same nuance because that's part of honoring a life, in my opinion. Well, and I love what you're doing because I feel like it does lift up the voices of those people who are not necessarily so narrowly ideologically motivated, which is what we see at the extremes. And and a lot of people are more flexible and see things complexly and might vote one way on one kind of thing and another way on another kind of thing. And that's just the way people are, but it's not the way that people are represented in the media or in social media. It's not the way people are represented. It's not the way people, yeah, well said. So like, you know, and I wonder about this too, because the news media, I'm, so I'm living in Germany right now mm-hmm. and the news here is publicly funded, right? Mm-hmm. So you're not necessarily seeing these competing news channels trying to get the most sensational stories to, to boost their ratings. So you're not necessarily getting this um, sensationalized view of the populace. Mm-hmm. But I, I oftentimes wonder, is the you know, capitalization of news networks in the U.S. sort of ha- having us create a false view of these extremes, that these extremes are the norm? And it sounds to me like you're saying probably so, probably There's- so. So I'm a big fan of the More in Common website. Um, There's another study there called the Perception Gap. And one of the things that they found was that the people who watch more partisan news on on either side tend to have the least accurate views of people on the other side of, of, of the spectrum. And so the people who were more likely to have accurate views were, first of all, the people who are more in the middle of that spectrum politically, but also people who watch just network news um, and, and not some of the ones that, that are more, uh, you know, presenting a left or a right perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was digging into and looking at, well, what are those news sources and trying to pull up research to sort of inform what I was reading and consuming? Because I did, I did find it really fascinating to see that even some of the stuff I was reading, I'm like, oh, there is a 
ideological bent here, and that's interesting. I, for years, I used to subscribe to the Week. Do you know? Do you know the mm -hmm. Week? Mm -hmm. uh, for those of you that don't know, they're just a. It's just a mashup of the same news story, but they will pull a paragraph from a right-leaning print newspaper and a left-leaning print newspaper, so you get to see how it's being covered. I don't even. Are they still around? The Week? I, I don't even know. Yeah. yeah. So I, I wanted to find out from you, what is it that, that ultimately compelled you to write the book, though? Aside from experience and skill, mm -hmm. were you also compelled because you're worried about the state of our democracy? Or were you worried that the, the polarization was creating mental health distress? What were the so ingredients? I had this experience back in the 90s um, where I started a group to bring together pro-choice and pro-life people to have dialogue with each other. Okay. And it was an absolutely transformational experience for me. Um, oh, I was going to say it was, I thought you were going to say it was absolutely tragic, but it was absolutely transformational. No. Okay. It didn't change anything about how I felt about women's reproductive rights. It changed everything about how I felt about people who disagreed with me on it. So and I had actually, after college, worked in a clinic that did abortions. And so I walked past the protesters and I had had very, you know, a very negative view and, and mostly a view of people who were at the very extreme of, yeah. of that perspective. And so to actually sit down and listen to people who were pro-life, but who were not, you know, the ones who were out there at the clinics and understand more about where they were coming from and what their views were. And what I realized is I had been evaluating their conclusions based on my values and my experiences. But if I really started with their values and their experiences, their conclusions made perfect sense. And this is the thing that I've learned about perspective taking is that I can't try to understand somebody else through through my lens. I have to try to get what their lens is, and then I can see it. Yeah. So, so what motivated me? It, some of it was I'm worried about our democracy, but I'm going to say even more of it was about realizing the transformational opportunity of having dialogue and really seeing that at this moment of conflict, it may be one of the best moments for us to take advantage of that opportunity and try to understand another perspective and try to see things in a different way and weirdly try to strengthen our relationships um, because people are motivated right now to, to maintain those relationships. When I ask people, why is it that they're interested in dialogue? Why did they come to the workshops? Why do they want to read the book? The number one reason is there's someone in my life who I want to stay connected to and we're having trouble because we have a disagreement about politics. <clears throat> That's a great motivation. The kinds of skills you need to approach the dialogue, uh, it's exactly what I cover in my book. Listening is really important, perspective taking, how to manage our emotions. And you probably know this already. Those same skills will be beneficial to us in every aspect of our lives. So if we're really motivated to do this now, how great that is that we can actually like gear ourselves up with some strengths that will carry us through in terms of uh, being a parent, being a coworker, being a community member, being a leader, like yeah. all of those things. So I, I guess I see opportunity, not just, um, 
tragedy. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, I'm hearing you say that it's a, the skill set isn't just applicable listening across political differences and mm-hmm. that it's additive to your life, right? That it Absolutely. can actually make your marriage better, could make your job better, can make your family dynamics better, which I think is a really important point, right? The more that we're able to, to make space for listening across differences. Um, what do you think, what do you think are the, the key skills that, maybe not the key skills, because I want people to buy your book, but what do you think is the one skill that we seem to really be out of practice with? The one that you're like, if you could just work on that one, it would make a big difference. So I want to mention two things. One is a skill and one is more of an attitude. So in terms of skills, listening, hands down, that's what we need to work on. And that's, of course, what we learn as mental health professionals. And I'm sure that it's something that you bring into your work with couples is helping them to listen to each other, right? Yeah. 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 It's so important. And, you know, it's what Stephen Covey calls listening to understand rather than listening to respond. That's really it. So, as you know, often we're not really listening to somebody when they're talking. We are formulating what we want to say back to them. We want to formulate the way we're going to counter what they're saying while they're yeah. talking. If instead we're really trying to understand so that when they when they stop talking, instead of saying what we think, we can say, oh, here's what I heard from you. Like, here's what you think. And first of all, that is so healing for someone to actually feel understood and feel heard. And it strengthens that relationship. It also might make them more interested in knowing what you have to say. So listening is so powerful. It's such a great skill to have. So that's the skill. The quality that helps somebody to use that skill, I think, is curiosity. Mm -hmm. So we need to actually want to understand before Mm -hmm. we're motivated to actually apply listening skills. And I, I came across the literature on intellectual humility when I was writing this book. And mm. I find that it's, a, it's an aspect of cultural humility, but it's, it's really where we can hold a very strong view about something, but still be respectful of people who hold a different view and curious about them and want to hear more and not feel threatened by someone having a different perspective. Turns out that intellectual humility is also a a great skill that will benefit us in our lives or a great quality that will benefit us in our lives. And so if we can um, be curious about where someone's coming from, a lot of people say that the reason that they're interested in dialogue is because they simply cannot fathom how someone can think or act or vote as they do. And I'm like, great, if you really can't understand and you have someone in front of you who could help you to understand, don't you want to find out? Like, don't you want to know? It's, I, I think it's so fascinating when somebody yes. has a really different take on something. And, and I would love it if we could come at things with that kind of view, with really being excited about learning where someone's coming from and how they can come from that perspective. Yeah. I, um, I've had some experiences through Sidewalk Talk where, when we were on our bus tour there, you know, cause we were from the Bay area, there were some assumptions that were made. And, but what was very interesting was the bridge that 
that was made initially was for me to say, like this, this one woman said, I don't like the sanctuary city policies. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, tell me, tell me why. What, what is it about those policies that are problematic for you? And, and she said, you know, um, I don't, she, she made a comment about Mexican-Americans. And I said, okay, so tell me what your issues with Mexican-Americans having a sanctuary city, like what, what comes up? And then she brought up safety. I said, oh, safety. So it sounds like safety is really important to you. That's It's important to me too. Mm-hmm. I said, but the policies for safety that are more important to me are gun, gun laws. I said, but it sounds like you and I both have the same goal, but we just have a different idea of how to get there. Because for me, I don't feel threatened by having Mexicans in my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel threatened by having guns in my neighborhood. And then she kind of thought, and and but I wasn't trying to convince her. I was literally just trying to say, okay, we're we have the same value, but we Mm -hmm. see a totally different way of solving this problem. Um, And she actually said thank you. For, and then we had a couple other, we had an exchange about healthcare and um, there was one other point and it, it wasn't, compa- I, because I didn't have that energy of trying to change her mind or being mad, I was constantly looking for how we shared the same value and how there might be a difference. Like there was another m- moment where I'm like, oh, it sounds like you really care about this country. Mm-hmm. Like it's clear. Or you, this, this issue wouldn't be that. And she goes, yeah, I do. I said, me too. Uh. That's such a beautiful example of, of dialogue across political lines because you could find some things that you had in common in terms of safety and loving our country. And, and so that's just fantastic. But you also got more in depth in the issue and the kinds of questions that you're asking, the open-ended questions, encouraging elaboration are the best thing that we can do in terms of inquiry, you know, rather than asking a question that tries to trap somebody into a gotcha, you know, asking a question where we're really like, oh, tell me more, tell me more, you know, where you are with that. Now, it actually turns out that if you want to persuade someone, that's actually the best thing you can do is ask people to elaborate. But it's also best if what you want to do is to understand them or to maintain to maintain a relationship with them. So you're that what what a great um, job you did, like applying those skills to understand and create a connection. Yeah. Now I want to ask you something though, because she and I were on social media. Mm-hmm. And not always does it go that easily on social media. Oh, no, Is there... no. <laughs> I just loved your reaction there. Oh, no, never. I mean, is it a total waste of time to even, even uh, sometimes, I, I mean, let me be super honest here. Sometimes I feel compelled, especially, sometimes I feel compelled, especially when I see the combativeness, combativeness going on to say, hey, can we dialogue about this? Mm-hmm. Right. Is that a waste of time? Because my friend Larice is watching right now, and I know she's going to say she always tells me it's a waste of time. <laughs> so it depends what you mean by dialogue. If you mean can we have an exchange back and forth in a chat section, uh, you know, on on social media, then I I don't think that's actually going to achieve anyone's goals. So here's what we know about perspective taking: is that the more types of input we have about somebody then the easier it is for us to understand their perspective. So if all we have is what someone's posting on social media, um, then that's very little information. If 
if we take it offline, even if it's like texting back and forth, that helps a little bit. But what really helps is if we have a phone conversation with someone and we can hear the tone of their voice, that yeah. helps us a lot. And then if we can actually see them and get their nonverbals also, that helps. So the more sources of information, the better. So social media, it's so limited and it's also so public that right. you try. everyone's always trying to manage like, what is it that I'm putting out there and how are people going to view that? And that's that thing about solidarity versus reaching across lines that doesn't work very well. I honestly think the only useful comment you can make on someone's social media if you disagree with them is, I'm interested to hear more about what you think. Can we set up a time to have a conversation? I love that you just, that's great. I'm taking notes. I appreciate that wholeheartedly. Um, there was one more thing I was going to say, and then I was so intent on listening to you that I wasn't thinking to respond, listening to respond. So it's gone. Oh, we're just dang. too present. We're just too present. Gosh, darn. Um, well, no, that's great. <laughs> oh, I, I know what I was going to ask you. Um, have you seen, there was a, well, there's been a series of these PSAs, but there, there was, someone just turned me on to these Heineken advertisements from three years ago. Did you see these where they had maybe a, a black feminist meet with a, a racist um, army veteran and they wouldn't reveal their political views, but would share something they had in common and do a little storytelling? Mm -hmm. And have a beer. And have a beer. And then they would show video footage on the screen above them after they've had a beer together of their political views mm -hmm. and to watch what happened to their dynamic after that. It was really fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I saw those and, you know, this is also encouraging, I think, um, that there are people and organizations and even, you know, beer companies that are looking at how do we bring people together and so there's a lot of organizations that are that are doing this bring uh living room conversations braver angels there are groups that are that are doing that you know my book isn't the only only book out there there's other books and other organizations and individuals i feel like there's something of a zeitgeist going on that's about oh, yeah. folks together um across political views and so i'm actually really encouraged by this and it's not what we mostly hear about in the news. And right. yeah, so I love that you are amplifying this because I think yeah. it's important that people know that if they want to have dialogue or if they just don't want to argue, they're not alone in that. That, mm -hmm. that there's plenty of people, they might not show up as easily in your social media feed, but there's plenty of other people who are in the same boat. Yeah. And I'm glad you shouted out Braver Angels and Living Room Conversations. We've had them both on the podcast. And uh, I actually train with Bill Doherty as well for my couples practice doing discernment counseling to help couples figure out if they want to break up or not. <laughs> so I'm a big fan of Bill's. Um, this is great. First, before I ask you my final closing ritual question, how can people find out more about you and find your work? I mean, obviously, they can go to Amazon or to their local bookseller and find Beyond Your Bubble. But are there ways that they can take workshops with you? Where can they find you on the internet? Give us a little rundown. Uh, if you go to my website, tanyaisrael.com, 
that has lots of information on it. It's got a section on beyond your bubble. And so that has information about, I, I can do you know virtual presentations. I'm uh, getting geared up to start doing uh, virtual workshops, like moving my workshop online uh, in early 2021. And um, if you're interested in buying the book, obviously, you know, that's, that, that has all the resources in it. If you want to download the uh, flowchart that will resolve all political conflict in our country, or you want to order a placemat, it's all right there. So um, that's, that's, that's a good spot to go to. Wonderful. I'm so grateful to, to have a UCSB professor on our podcast doing work that I'm interested in. It feels, makes me feel really lucky. Um, we have a bit of a ritual for how we complete our conversations, which is that I don't in have you talk to me, but I invite you to speak directly to our 8,500 listeners around the world to offer them whatever you feel called, whether it's words of advice or a wish as our ritual to say goodbye. Thank you so much. I, I feel like the first thing that I want to do is say, I appreciate all of you for listening. Uh, I appreciate the values that you're embodying through your listening, through your investment in this community and in this conversation. The piece of wisdom that I want to share is something that I use in closing my book, which is um, a quote that I borrowed from my friend Lisa Slavid, which is, with relationship comes grace that the more connected we are, the easier it is for us to forgive each other. We will mess up, we will fail sometimes, but we can stay connected. And uh, that's all about how much we invest in, in other people. And so I would say that that's my piece of wisdom is keeping invest, keep investing in other people. We need each other and uh, we can, hold each other and knit ourselves back together. Thank you so much for this time and appreciate you. And, and you all have information on how to find Dr. Tanya Israel's website now in the comments. And thanks for being here so much. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Thank you for being here and listening to this episode of the Sidewalk Talk podcast. If you like what you heard, tell your friends, tell your family, like and comment on the podcast publisher that you're listening from and subscribe. This will help us get the word out about changing our culture to one of connection.